and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, Pastor Josh explains and compares the one act of Adam to the one act of Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Are You an Adam or Christ? Part 3. But this week we finish up the line of thought. And so I'll kind of show you how that goes as we walk through this. But Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, let's read it together and then ask for God's help. So verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray for help. Oh Lord, our God, we know that it's entirely possible to come here on this Lord's day simply out of routine, simply to check that box of the week and feel like we did our religious duty And Lord, to sit here and zone out and and just for whatever reason, not pay attention. And God, for this, this to be a time where no good is done. We know that's possible. But Father, we come to you as sons and daughters adopted, bought by the blood of Christ, our only access to you through Christ. And and we ask, oh God, please give us grace. We want this time to be used that we come to know you, know your truths, And in coming to know your truths, be transformed and grown. So God, we trust you that there are things here that our soul needs. We don't always understand why we need it or what is needed. But God, we come to your word to feed. And so Father, we pray, give us what we need. So I ask God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us a mind um, and even just energy right now, oh God, to not be sleepy and to the physical body to have the capacity to think deeply and engage. And then God, do the miracles of bringing the word deeper to open us up, to lay us bare before you, oh God. 
bring it to the soul to show us the depths of your grace. If we comprehend these things, we will glory in our salvation and I pray that we will, O oh God. So where we all are individually in your infinite wisdom, come and give us what we need. I need a thousand graces, O oh God, to teach in a way that's gonna be faithful, truthful, and also helpful. So please God, make me useful to your people today. And I ask all these things through Christ. Amen. Charles Darwin's most famous work, which is, you know, talked about in biology classes. He is often heralded as a hero. His most famous work, you could probably tell me right now what it is on the origin of the species. But there's, there's a bit that's left out. There's actually quite a bit that's oftentimes conveniently left out when he and his primary work is spoken of. And one of them is the rest of the title of the book. Your biology teacher conveniently didn't tell you the whole thing and nor did you have it prescribed as reading for you because they don't want you knowing everything that he said in there. Here's the full title of his work. On the origin of the species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races for life. One of his primary points, which he makes very clear in that work, was to argue for the superiority of white Europeans over the rest of the colors and nations and ethnicities of the earth. In his follow-up work, The Descent of Man, he doesn't exactly call for the extermination of, his words, inferior races, but he does predict it would happen and inferred that it would be a good thing. It would be a good thing if the Aborigines and black Africans were wiped off of the face of the earth. You take that work, that influence, and you follow the consequence of ideas. I ideas lead to things. I ideas have ramifications and actions and movements that come out of them. You follow the consequence of his ideas and you can follow and trace a number of wicked men, wicked movements and wicked acts of the earth who all quoted him and his work as where they drew these things, including Hitler, who made constant reference to Darwin in his attempt to eliminate, quote, the inferior race of the Jews. Here's a, here's a simple point from that. Darwin rejected the word of God explaining our origin in Adam. And in his invented narrative, he attached us to the apes. And throughout history, and including today, this narrative has been used as a justification for multitudes and multitudes of wicked acts. We're just animals after all. You, you hear it come up quite often in pop culture music. And even though you might say, oh, well, you know, that just seems kind of silly. Some, some artist singing about, let's just get it on because we're just animals after all. But also understand it has crept into academia. 
that there are many, a high school teacher that has spoken about what influence we ought to give to students in ethics and morality. And they've said, well, kids are going to have sex. They're animals after all. Even going to Harvard in the ethics division, ethics, by the way, this is going to be a joke. The Harvard Ethics Division, a man by the name of Peter Singer, for decades argued, publicly made what his, his language, moral arguments to remove the stigma of bestiality, because we're all animals, to encourage the passing of laws that would allow mothers to kill their children up into the toddler years, because you look at the animal kingdom and that kind of thing happens and even making the argument that every baby born with a disability for the good of the race ought to be eliminated because after all, we are attached to the apes. Here's, here, here's my point. What you believe about your origins has consequences. What you believe about your attachment to others has far-reaching ramifications. So biblically speaking, the understanding of your relation to Adam matters. It matters. Your understanding of who you are attached to in Adam, and then also as the scripture goes on to show, your understanding of your attachment to Christ matters. It has farther reaching ramifications than what we even might immediately see. What that one seemingly small belief does to the very foundations of everything else that you believe, it, it matters. L listen carefully. Your understanding of your origins and your attachment to Adam and Christ will influence every decision of your life. You will make life decisions about marriage, children, college, jobs, money, on and on based on what you believe about your attachment to Adam and your attachment to Christ. It always amazes me how the most basic truths of the Bible, there's a difference between basic and simple, how the most basic truths of the Bible really are the foundational truths. Sometimes we can get a little too big for our Christian britches. We can come to a truth in the Bible and we can just kind of brush it off in thinking, I, I already know that. Have you ever done what I've done in my Bible reading? You come to a very familiar passage and your heart just assumes, I already know this. Like you come to Genesis 1 and just brush through it so quickly that we don't even give it time to consider but shallow understandings of basic truths lead to big problems. And the big theology of scripture of your life is built on those basic foundations that are laid. Your attachment to Adam can seem like such an obvious thing, but then we come to the New Testament, Romans 5 here, and we're being shown. That's a whole lot deeper stuff than what I saw when I read Genesis 1. And what this passage has been doing 
is drawing out and bringing us deeper into the depths of what it means that we are attached to Adam and then bringing that to help us see what it means to be attached to Christ. If you've not been with us for the last few weeks, then this language I'm using, attached to Adam, attached to Christ, I get it like that will sound weird. Just hang in there. I'm going to do a little bit of a recap to kind of catch us up to speed here. But we've divided this text that we've been working through into into four points, four divisions. One was sin and death from Adam. Number two was Adam and Christ contrasted. That was last Sunday. We're ready for point number three today. And because we have worked to lay the groundwork of the passage, we've worked through the meaning and such, point number three can go quicker than some of the others. And then point four, the last point of this text is a, um, it's a simpler point. It's an easier point to grasp. So we can get through the both of those today. So the plan is today, unless Jesus returns in the service, we'll we'll look through points three and four, finish up the passage and the outline that's here. So let's look to the text. Ready for point number three, Adam and Christ compared. A little bit of the recap and what we've been seeing. God ordained history for Adam, the first man created by God, to be a type, a picture, a foreshadow of Christ. Adam was created as the the head, a representative leader over all of mankind because we have all descended from him. And so his actions have affected everyone who is attached to him. If you recall from last Lord's Day, last Sunday in verses 15 to 17, we looked at Adam and Christ contrasted and we saw three ways that Adam and Christ do not exactly correlate, that there was a bit of an inexact, an indirect kind of correlation. So a direct correlation, which is what we're going to see today, would be to say something like Adam brought death, Jesus brought life. That's really easy to see, easy to see the connection. Last week, we looked at three ways that scripture shows that what Christ brought is of a greater degree, a greater magnitude than what Adam brought. So Adam brought a, let's just say a negative 10. Jesus didn't just bring a positive 10. Jesus has brought you to grace abounding and grace reigning forever and ever. So there are ways that what Jesus has done is greater. But this week, we're seeing some ways that there are direct correlation between Adam and Christ. There are two verses, 18 and 19. So I'm going to divide it into two subpoints, A and B. And underneath, underneath both of them, there'll be a couple of points to see there as well. So I'll try to keep you up to speed on where we are in the outline if you're taking notes there. So we're ready for the first part of Adam and Christ compared letter A from verse 18. So look, look at 18 with me again and see if you can see it. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. A couple parts, even underneath that, the first one here, notice the one act of Adam corresponds with the one act of Christ. So what is the one act of Adam? That's pretty easy. It's the sin Um, Even though, by the way, when you read Genesis 3 and the temptation that took place there, there was a lot going on. Um, Satan tempted Eve. Adam was standing right there next to her. Tempted in thoughts. 
brought them to lust with the eyes, lust with the flesh, lust with pride, brought them to doubt the word of God. There was a lot of things happening in that conversation, but even though there was a lot happening, it's still just kind of summarized as one act, the act to choose to disobey the commandment of God. Now, um, here's a little bit of a, by the way, in this, and there are numerous little kind of sub sub points, parentheses in this text. It has about half a dozen of them. I keep trying to bring some of them as we look at this. One thing to kind of talk about as we think about Adam and Eve and their temptation, why is it that the text blames Adam? Like when you read Genesis 3, one of the things you see is, is that Eve was actually the first to eat of the fruit and then Adam followed. So why doesn't the Bible go into and say, in Eve all die, in Eve these things have happened? Why, why is Adam's name there? Well, friends, it's, it's the same principle we've been looking at, that of representative headship. Adam represented as the leader represented both he and Eve together. They have both sinned together. Now, I do believe it would have been different had the scenario played out that one would have sinned and the other not, but they sin together. And when that happens, the representative leader takes the heat, gets the greatest amount of the blame. The Bible teaches both individual responsibility and also a greater responsibility that leaders have. Husbands, take note, take note. There's not a whole sermon here on get your act together and act like the men God has called us to be. But there is a sub point of a sermon there in these kinds of things of the representative head of the family. Fathers, husbands, when you stand before God, you will not only answer for yourself. That would make the judgment scary enough. I know a lot of the idiocy of my heart. That would be scary enough, but also for the fact that we will answer for our role as the leader and the representative head of our family with responsibilities towards them adds a greater weight to the judgment. So that's kind of a, a sub sub point in this. Adam is the one who is given the blame here. Back to the point, if that's the one act of Adam, What's the one act of Christ? I think this one might be a little harder to pinpoint. You know, initially we might just say, well, the cross. But think about even all that was involved in the cross. With the cross, you had the arrest of Jesus that had been brewing and being set up for three years because of the jealousy of the religious leaders. You had the betrayal of Judas the abandoning by the apostles. You had the trial before the Jews, the questioning by Pilate, the scourging by Roman soldiers, the rejection of the people, the nailing to the cross, forsaken by the father. He thirsted, he groaned in pain, and then he gave up his spirit. So if, if we're gonna like, like look at what is like one little moment, at what moment would all of that be? But then also Romans 4, we saw, shows us that Jesus's resurrection is not just simply a happy part of it all. The resurrection is necessary for our salvation. It is a necessary part of all of the atonement and redemption that Jesus has brought. So what's the one act? I believe the text is speaking in a summarizing kind of way here, but also understand this as well. 
We are also going to see in the next point that we look at that Jesus's life of obedience was also necessary for our salvation. So you've got all of that going on. And so some, here, so here's how, here's the conclusion some come to with what is the one act of Christ. Some come to the conclusion that this is referring to the entirety of Jesus descending from heaven, the incarnation, which is Jesus as God with the Father, the eternal God taking human flesh, the incarnation, the life of obedience, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, all of it, one summarizing thing. They might be right. There's a point to see with that. Um, I think the most natural reading of the text, the place that I come to is, I believe it is referring to the work of the cross, the work of the cross. And you know where I get that are some places in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 1, which speak of the summary of the gospel is to simply say, Christ crucified. You can say Christ crucified and you're referring to the whole of the gospel and the work of Christ. So one act of Adam, the disobedience to the commandment, the one act of Christ, I believe is referring to the work of the cross and the resurrection. So one and one, there's another part of verse 18 as well in that through Adam, condemnation came through Christ justification has come. Condemnation is again, we've been seeing a lot of these in the book of Romans, a legal term. It's heard in courtrooms. But let me remind you, the only reason why we have courtrooms on earth is because there is a courtroom in heaven. The only reason we have a judicial law on earth is because there is a law of God in heaven. Understand this. Humans did not invent forensic law and then God said, man, what a great idea. I think I'll use that as an example for the gospel. That's not how this went. God is a lawful, righteous, holy God who on earth established law, judicial law, the law of Moses. Listen, if you ever wonder like where in America did we get some of our stuff where we have a courtroom, a judge, witnesses called, evidence looked at, impartiality observed, that came from the law of Moses. God is the one who wrote those things into creation. But part of the thing to understand is it exists on earth because it exists in heaven. And so I say all of that to say this, when the book of Romans uses forensic legal language to explain the gospel, I don't believe that's just a metaphor. When the Bible says we're going to stand and give an account and have a judgment, that's not just poetic language. You're going to stand before the living God. Every soul is specifically going to answer to the Lord Jesus and you are on trial. You are on trial for your life. Lawbreaking will be punished. Only righteousness, only perfect fulfilling and keeping of the law will enable you to come into the kingdom. Man, I think 10 minutes of uninterrupted thought about that would make anyone a Christian. 10 minutes of uninterrupted meditation on that reality right there. How would that not make you want to run to Christ? But if you imagine, if you imagine you're going to come to that courtroom and Jesus is going to look at you and think, man, you really were a good guy. And then just pass over 
all of your sins and welcome you into the kingdom. Listen to me, you are denying scripture. You are denying the very word of God. God isn't wrong and he doesn't lie. What he tells you is every law-breaking will be punished. The Bible tells us what even in our opinion, small sins deserve. Romans 6.23, it deserves death. The breaking of the law deserves death. Matthew 5, uh, part of that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, or excuse me, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, anyone who has hatred in his heart for his brother, anyone who, who says the insult, you fool, to your brother shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. He follows that up a little bit later and he says, make friends with your opponent on the way to the courtroom. Part of the point of the gospel is that we who deserve punishment, God has made a way for us to settle out of court on our way to that day. But if you come to that day and you do not have what, what, this, what this text has been calling justification, if you do not have pardon, if you do not have forgiveness, if you do not have the righteousness of Jesus applied to you, then on that day in your hearing in the courtroom, you will hear the guilty verdict. Another way of saying the guilty verdict is condemnation. You will be sentenced to condemnation, the punishment of your sin. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It is to be pardoned. So Adam brought condemnation in Christ. He has brought justification of life to all attached to him. So that was letter A. Let's move to verse 19, which is the second part here, letter B. Adam's disobedience made all in him sinners Christ's obedience will make all in him righteous. Look at 19 again. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, couple parts under there. First, Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. Those are uh, shown with the correlation with one another. We've already mentioned uh, Adam's act, Adam's disobedience. But what, what, what is this referring to Jesus's obedience? By the obedience of the one. Well, while the Bible shows that the work of the cross, the, those specific, those three days, crucifixion, resurrection, really is the center and the climax it is the most important part of Jesus's work. In fact, like our English words, crucial, comes from the word crucifixion. When we talk about the crux of a situation, we're talking about the thing that everything else hinges on. That's from the word crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross is the central part of the gospel, the central part of, of all of it there. While that is true, there is something else we need to know. Don't, don't anybody leave here and say, Pastor Josh said, you know, the crucifixion is not the most important part. It is, but understand this, there is not something else that the Bible also shows. Look over with me to Romans chapter eight for a second. Verses I've shown you before, making a point we've made before, but we must know it. Romans eight, look at verse three, follow along with me. For what the law could not do, pause right there, what could the not law not do? 
it can't save you. It can't make you right with God. The commandments can't make you right, not because there's anything wrong with the law of God. The problem is with us. So that's what the law could not do. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then watch the first part of verse four, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Listen, if you've ever wondered when Jesus came to bring redemption, why did he live 30 years before he ever began his public ministry? What's the point? Why live 30 years on the earth without the preaching, teaching, miracles, and these kinds of things? It wasn't just to kill time. There was something massively important happening in his life. He lived a life of obedience. And there's a reason why the first four books of the New Testament that we call the Gospels, they make a very specific point to show many ways that even from the moment of conception, Joseph and Mary in their actions towards Jesus, and then everything we have about Jesus's childhood, which is very little, but everything we have about it is always showing in every way he kept the law of God. So even whenever we're shown that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses, and he was dedicated as the firstborn, according to the law of Moses, the appropriate offerings were made according to the law of Moses. Something is being shown there. What's being shown is to every dot of an I and every cross of a T, every jot, every tittle, Jesus kept the law of God. He never broke the law. Now he broke the Pharisees interpretation of the law because their interpretation was wrong, but he never broke the law of God, even down to the things that we in our sinful human flesh be like, ah, that's not a big deal. Jesus kept it all. Every single part of it. And that is massively important because friends, the law of God that you and I were born under the covenant made at creation with humanity means this. You have obligations towards your creator. And if you fail in those obligations, you do not get eternal life. The obligations are keep the law, obey the law, fulfill the law. It's like God said, you can have, you can have eternal life here. Here's how you do it. Keep, keep this law. We didn't do it. God is not going to simply wink and say, we'll just pretend it all happened. Again, everything is above the line of righteousness. Everything was done in a, in a just, righteous, and holy kind of way. So here's the point. You could not fulfill the obligations you need to be right with God. And so Jesus came and did it on our behalf. Somebody had to keep the law of God. Jesus kept it on our behalf and it gets counted towards us. When we say that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, this is what we mean. What we mean is his keeping of the law, his obedience, fulfilling the obligations of the law. That's his righteousness. 
You are counted in Christ as if you had obeyed the law of God. That double imputation, my sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness, his law keeping imputed to us. Which, which is why, friends, when you're reading the Gospels and you come to that part where Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I don't know about you, but I've read through that you know, in the early days and just be like, well, yeah, of course he's Jesus. Of course he's going to keep it. What's the big deal here? I'm glad, but what's it matter? That's actually a massively important thing happening there. You, you have again, a correlation being set up here. The first man, Adam was tempted and fell, plunged men into sin and condemnation. The new Adam, the new man has come and he was tempted, but he victoriously prevailed in his temptation. And those moments that Luke 4 tell you about are symbolic of the entirety of his life of obedience, always keeping the commandments and the, and the law of God. In those moments, Jesus was accomplishing his work as the second Adam. He has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And then here's the Second part of verse 19. In Adam, all were made sinners. In Christ, all will be made righteous. In Adam, we were made, and so this will be some of what we study next week in the doctrinal sermon on original sin. We were made not simply doers of bad deeds, but the very core of us, the very roots, the farthest reaching parts of who we are that make us our truest self. It's sinful. It's sinful. But in Christ, notice the language, notice the verb tense, all attached will be made righteous. In Christ, we have righteousness in three ways. This is important. This will help you understand the Bible. Um, this, this really is significant. It's a place that sometimes people get confused about how to read the Bible. For instance, Romans 3 told us, none is righteous, not even one. There's none who does good, not even one. If that's the case, why are Noah and Job in the Bible called righteous? Right? So if nobody's righteous, how are they righteous? How do we get righteousness? Righteousness is spoken of in three ways in the Bible, and we have all of them in Christ. So here they are. Number one, legally. That's what we've been seeing in the gospel, the courtroom forensic language. Legally, we are counted as righteous. Number two, and this is the introduction to chapter six, by the way. Chapter six is all about the second one I'm going to tell you. Number two is we are enabled now to progressively, practically live righteously now. Meaning our character is going to grow in righteousness now. Number three, perfect righteousness in every way in the age to come at glorification. So the day will come when legally, practically, every way, thoughts, attitude, everything. It's all righteous, everything. So three ways that we're made righteous. And so when you're reading the Bible, yes, sometimes it's hard. You got to use some context to figure it out. When the Bible uses the word righteousness, sometimes we got to look, all right, what way is it being used here in this kind of understanding? So legal, progressive, and one day perfect. So that brings us through point three 
in verse 19. Here's the last point of the text. Number four, the purpose of the law. It's in verses 20 and 21. But before we even read it, I want to tell you why it's here. Because it could seem out of place. Because here we are talking about the gospel and imputation. And all of a sudden we go back again, because we've already been to the law. Here we are talking about the law again. So why? What, what makes it fit right here? There has just been so much misunderstanding of why God gave the law in scripture. Like you take the Ten Commandments. Why did he give them? Why did God put them there? For thousands of years, and it continues today, many misunderstand why God wrote these things out. Over and over again, the Bible will show God did not give the law to save you because you can't do it. There are even entire sections of scripture, an entire book called the book of Galatians, that is written to shout this one thing, the law can't save you. You will only be saved by faith. That's not why the law's in there. And yet still, yet still, the world over for thousands of years now and continuing to today, there are Christian or dramatic quotes, Christian groups who teach the way you'll be, the way you get to heaven, the way you're right with God is you go be a good boy. Let me tell you how to be a good boy. You keep all of these rules that I give you, which is really just taking the law of God, reducing it down like the Pharisees did. You do enough religious devotion. You earn enough merit through the sacraments. You do all of these things. You be good. You be good. You be good. And you'll be right with God. And the Bible is screaming, no, no, no. That's not how you're right with God. And if all of these Christian groups would just open their Bibles they would see verses like this. One thing to understand is all over the New Testament, everywhere the Holy Spirit sees an opportunity to just throw a verse in there that says, you're not righteous by the law. It throws it, he throws it in there. And so here we have a place, track this. We've been walking through the gospel of grace, grace. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by a gift of God. How did that gift come? Imputation. Your sins imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Everything about that is declaring a message. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. Jesus did this. You're just simply receiving something he did. Everything about this is it's a free gift of grace. And here's always the question then that the objectors, the legalist, then want to throw in there every time this is talked about. Oh, well, Paul, if, if it's by grace, then why did God give the law? And over and over again, the Bible will answer that. Here's why God gave the law. So now read verse 20 and see it with your own eyes. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Isn't it interesting? The false religions, which teach you're made right with God by the law, say you gain righteousness by this law when what the Bible says is actually your righteousness is even reduced even further by the law. The Bible actually says the exact opposite of what false religion, that's a big point, guys. The exact opposite. 
The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, there was a time that sin reigned in death. Now, even so, grace would reign. Through righteousness, meaning God did not do this apart from justice. Through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. How did the sin increase with the, with the writing of the book of Exodus? That's what's being referred to here. The clarifying of the law, the, the, the Ten Commandments being inscribed in the stone. The moral law was always there, but when God gave the law, he clarified the moral law. So how did sin increase? Well, it increased awareness. It increased awareness. Look at the Israelites when Josiah read the book of the law to them and they collectively wept as a nation. They were made aware of their sin. But I believe that the law did more than that. Specifically to Israel, because in the law of Moses, the law at Sinai, God not only wrote out the moral law, but remember that part about the ceremonial law? That was a part of law. Those were rules that the rest of the nations didn't have to keep. Israel was given those regulations and rules and such. What that meant was there were more opportunities to sin then than before God gave it. God gave them the temple cleansings and the offerings and it's so exhausting. When you get done reading Leviticus, you're just like, how could anybody keep up with this? And that's part of the point. Part of the point is whenever you read it, you're just like, this is what it would take humanly speaking to be right with God based on a religion like this? Yes, I could never do it. Now you're getting the point. Now you're understanding you need Christ. The law was a way of putting an arm around the worshiper and saying, look here, bud, there is no salvation here. You need that guy coming, the Savior, the Messiah to come. The law pointed the way to Christ. That's why Galatians 3, Galatians 3 calls the law our tutor, a mentor that leads us to Christ because it is pointing and showing you need Christ. In Adam, you're under the law. And as a sinner, as a failure, let me bolster your self-esteem today. You're a failure. And I'm a failure in the law of God, in keeping the obligations of being right with God based on your works, deeds, obedience. You're a failure. You cannot do it. Christ came to bring a way for you to settle out of court. Christ came to bring a way to pardon you and give you his righteousness applied justification. It comes by grace through faith at the moment of turning to Christ. In Adam all die, in Christ all live by the grace of God. Now, let me kind of bring all of this in and try to apply it to our observance of the Lord's Supper. Why do we, why do, we do this? Why do, why do we take this together? Why did God give it? Why, why do we have this? God gave it as yet another act of worship that preaches in a different way. You, you know, sometimes we'll say, of um, somebody who did a great action. Maybe they laid down their lives for someone else. We'll say that moment he preached a sermon, even though he didn't speak. 
There are ways in which God has worked and the action itself preaches a sermon. God has given us the gospel in words. The Bible says that as the words of the gospel are preached, we come to see the face of Christ. Now that's obviously not with the visual eyes. It's with the eyes of faith. It's a metaphorical way of saying we come to know God. We come to know Christ through the words of the gospel. God has given the ordinances in another way of showing, another way of preaching the gospel of the grace of Christ, the message of justification. When, when, when we take this together, it's yet another way, and there's something special about holding something in your hand. You can see it, can taste it, can smell it. Something about that which brings a way of rooting the truths down deeper. We talk about Jesus giving his body and Jesus shedding his blood. This is another way that we help words translate into worship. We worship by remembering. We worship through gratitude and thanksgiving. These elements that are up here, this is not the actual body or the literal blood of Jesus. We believe that is a misunderstanding of the scriptures. And if you were brought up in that background and have questions about that, sometime go read 1 Corinthians 11 and see the way we're shown we worship through the participation in these things. What this is, is another way of meditating, remembering, and gratitude. So, Always want to pass along the instructions and the warnings that scripture gives before we partake together. Um, the Bible says no one is to eat in an unworthy manner. And even that was spoken to Christians. We're specifically told that if you don't want to turn to Christ, it would be trampling on his grace to take this. If you will not turn to him, this would be rejection of him. So don't bring any kind of discipline on yourselves. And then even to believers, the Bible says that there's supposed to be examination and confession that takes place before we partake of these things, that we are not to, in an, in an unruly or whimsical kind of way, in a, in a nonchalant disrespect and presumption, waltz into the presence and grace of God as while holding unrepentant sin in our hearts. So we want to confess sin, examine ourselves, and then join in. If you're not a member of this church, so long as you have trusted in Christ, turned to him to be saved, follow that up with baptism, we invite you to join with our church family, but we do plead with you to take it seriously as we observe. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give just about a minute of silence again for last kind of confession for sin, and then I'll call some helpers up and then we'll protect together. So let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Oh, Lord, our God, um, we confess our sin to you, Lord, collectively as individuals. God, we've sinned in many different kinds of ways, and we ask for your forgiveness. And even right now, as we're thinking of them, God, we are acknowledging them. Forgive us for the ways that we specifically have dishonored you, and Lord, every pattern of sin in our lives. Lord, we want to lay it down, repent of it, and move on to obedience. We also pray for us as a church family, O oh God. Every way that we are failing 
to honor you. Please show mercy to us, O God. Father, we want to leave sin. We want to repent. We want to move towards obedience. Help us, Lord. Look on us with mercy, not according to our righteousness, but according to your loving kindness, according to the grace, the abounding grace you have for us in Christ. We ask, O God, show mercy to us. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, and we hold bread in our hands and we taste the cup on our lips. Help us, O oh God, to have the gospel preached in this way. Please, O oh Lord, care for us. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's sermon titled, Are You an Adam or Christ? Part 3. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.